your Bibles, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 3. And it's been a little while since we opened our Bibles to this scripture. I think we're somewhere about a month away from the last time that we talked about it. And in the previous two messages, we were discussing uh, sin in a Christian's life. Is it possible for a Christian to continue to live in sin and be born again? Now, we haven't really varied much on that subject matter since the first message that I preached on 1 John about a year ago uh, because that's really the theme of the epistle. How do you tell that a person is a true believer? And in this particular part of the Scripture, John is dealing with sin, and it always seems that he's talking about sin in one form or another. Now, the day that each of us entered into this life, we came into the world born with a sinful nature. Bible teaches that we are sinners by birth. And so from day one, we were going to have to deal with the issue of sin. Sin is with us all through this life. But the relationship to sin changes when you become a Christian. When you are born again, sin is not the same in you as it was before. Now, sin is still against God. That doesn't change. Sin is still harmful, and sin still causes problems. Sin is still a battle, and sin has to be dealt with. But it's dealt with in a different way when you become a Christian. The Bible teaches we have been forgiven of our sins. We have uh, entered into a new life in Christ, and we have the ability to resist sin and live in righteousness, which is an ability that we did not have before, before we became born again. And then the desire to sin also changes. The Scripture teaches that every person without Christ has a desire to live in sin. They don't desire to live any other way. We say, well, that's not true. I know people that don't, you know, pretty good moral people. They don't like to do bad things. Well, people may be affected with remorse when it comes to sin, but if they're not saved, they don't have the sense that their sins offend the holiness of God and that their sin has actually estranged them from God and that they have no relationship with God and that they are also under God's wrathful condemnation. And that's the realization that comes to your mind when it's opened by the Holy Spirit with the gospel. You have the sensibility of all the things that I've just mentioned and you can't go on under the weight of that condemnation. Whenever a person receives the effectual call of the Holy Spirit to salvation, he understands these things, and he repents of his sin, and he turns in faith to Christ. Well, the question then that we have before us here, is it possible for you to have that realization, to to turn to Christ and to believe in him for salvation, to receive righteousness or or to receive, uh, I should say, the forgiveness of your sins and to become a child of God, can you have all of that and yet it never changes you? Can you be saved and go on living in sin just like you did before? Oh, there were some in John's day that said that you could. And he was confronted with a group that was called the Gnostics, and they thought that they had reached another level of spirituality. And they said sin really doesn't matter. Sin doesn't affect us. Uh, We can sin all that we want, and it doesn't affect us spiritually. And so their lives never changed. There was nothing different about them. They claimed that they knew Christ. They said we are the children of God. 
But that's why this epistle starts out in the very first chapter with a statement that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And John says, if you continue to walk in the darkness and say that you have fellowship with God, you are a liar. And then that theme continues on into the second chapter, verse number 4. He says, if you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. In other words, if you keep on in sin and you say that you know Christ, you are a liar. Strong language, but that's the way that John puts this. So now we find ourselves in the third chapter, and the same subject is before us again, only this time there's more detail given and there's more emphasis put upon this subject. So you have two parallel passages here in chapter 3, two sections, verses 4 through 7 and verses 8 through 10 that present arguments on three fronts against the notion that a person can be a Christian and continue to live in sin. And yet, with these very clear arguments from Scripture, there is a segment of Christianity that says that it is possible to be a Christian and not to show any evidence of it. It's possible to be a believer and yet never become a disciple in Christ, of Christ. It's possible to be saved and to say that you're on your way to heaven, and you can even come to the place where you can say that you deny the faith of Christ, and still you are a born-again believer. Now, all of that seems strangely foreign to us because you've been taught better than that. It seems to be preposterous, but it is believed. And there are people that travel in the very same circles in which we go among the independent Baptist movement who believe and teach that it's unnecessary for a believer to submit to the lordship of Christ. That all that you really have to do is to acknowledge the facts of the gospel, then receive Christ as Savior, but you don't have to receive him as your Lord, but you're still saved. And so you can go on and sin. You don't have to submit to follow Christ. You don't have to become a disciple of his. Just as long as you've raised your hand, you've walked the aisle, and you've knelt at the altar, and you ask Christ to come into your life, if you've changed from unbelief to belief, then you're there. You're a child of God, and you should never allow anyone to question your salvation. Folks, that's being taught every Sunday in some churches. In fact, that is the evangelical mindset of many churches today. And yet, it is utterly foreign to the teachings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And really, it's enough to make an apostle like John hopping mad over the issue. Because you have not changed from unbelief to belief unless you have received Jesus Christ as as your Lord. And so this is what we're dealing with once again in this section of the epistle. Is it possible to be born again and still live in sin? Well, let's read the scriptures, and then we're going to catch up just a little bit on the previous arguments that have been made. And then we're going to proceed to the third very, very strong refutation against this idea of non-lordship salvation. Now, if you look in 1 John 3, verse number 4, "...whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous." He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. I don't see how you could be much clearer on this subject of the Christian's incompatibility with sin than what we've just read here. This is a forceful, dynamic argument against all of those descriptions that I mentioned just a moment ago. And so John proceeds along three lines of proof, and the first of these we've already discussed. First two we've already talked about. Let's catch up a little bit. The first one is the nature of sin. His first argument concerns the nature of sin, that sin is against God, Sin is the transgression of God's law. It's really even more than that. It's the mindset, it's the attitude of a person that is against God. It's willful, active disobedience against God. He also says that it's the character of the devil. And if it's the devil's character, then those that sin against God do not have God's character. They have the devil's character. Now, that's the simple, a very simple argument to understand. A born-again believer is a new creation in Christ. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He's changed from what he was before. He is different. He is in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. He's been given a new nature, and he is being sanctified. And with all of that that's going on in his life, it is impossible for a Christian to have the characteristics of the devil. Sin is opposed to all of those steps. It's incompatible with the life of a Christian because sin stops the processes that we've just been talking about. And a person that's been truly born again cannot continue in his old life because God's work in him doesn't permit it. If he's not being conformed, if he's not being progressively sanctified, then he's not really been born of God. Now, the second argument that John presents here is the work of Christ. Based upon the work of Christ, a sinner cannot continue, or a saved person cannot continue to live in sin. What did Christ come into the world to do? Well, he came to remove sin. Verse 5 says that he was manifested to take away our sins. So the cross, that's where Christ went to take away our sins. And Christ's work on the cross was to justify us from our sins and then to begin that holy work within us in which we become new creatures. And so to say that a person could be born again and yet continue to live in sin is to say that the cross has had no effect upon him. And then also in verse number 5, there's a statement about the character of Christ, that Christ had no sin. And the argument would go along these lines. If Christ is in you and you're in Christ, then whose character are you going to have? Well, you're going to have Christ's character. Your life can't be characterized by sin. And verse number 6 says that if you abide in Christ, which is commanded in chapter 2, verse number 28, that if you you abide in Christ, you will not continue in sin. And if you do, then you don't know Christ. Now, again, it's a very simple, fundamental argument. And yet it's denied by those who say that it is possible to be saved and not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, verse number 8 takes it a little bit further, and it says that Christ was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Now, Christ is going to do that finally at the second coming. Uh, When he comes again, the entire world is going to be rid of sin. But who among us here tonight would think that, that this means that 
Christ's work against Satan and against sin has not already started. That Christ hasn't already begun that work. If he hadn't begun the work, how did you get saved? I mean, the devil has people blinded to the gospel of Christ. He has a stranglehold upon the sinner's heart, and there's no person who is ever able to break that death grip that Satan has upon us unless God intervenes to make it happen. And that means that the power of Christ is at work and that Christ is powerful enough to overcome Satan right now. And that's why you got saved, because he was powerful enough to overcome Satan. And since he is that powerful, once he has begun the work in you, he has the power to continue that work and to make sure that you persevere in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I've mentioned before, the very same people that we're talking about here don't believe in perseverance either. They believe that a Christian can live a defeated life, that he doesn't have to have victory over sin. What does John say in the fourth verse of chapter 5? He says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. What does it mean to overcome the world? Well, the simplest definition that I could give you of that is that it means to defeat sin in your life. Those that are born of God overcome. And if they don't overcome, then they're not true believers. No matter how many times they raise their hands or how many times they walk the aisle, if they do not overcome, they're not believers. Now, I think that might be the reason why that you see so much activity many times at the altar, so to speak, and you see people constantly rededicating their lives over and over again. Maybe they really need to get saved. That might be the problem. So those are the first two proofs, and I refer you to the earlier messages for a fuller explanation of those. Now, I want to go on to the third argument. And for many people, this is the hardest part of this passage to understand. But it really doesn't have to be. We just have to do some investigation. So argument number three is the contrast of practice. Now, look at verses 9 and 10. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin... For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, the contrast is the difference between the practice of God's children and the practice of the devil's children. Now, according to verse number 8, those that commit sin, those that practice sinning, are of the devil. And verse number 10 says that those who do not do righteousness are not of God. So that's the same statement in another way. They are of the devil. Then whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And verse 7 says he that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. Or that means even as Christ is righteous. So that is the practice of righteousness. A, a, A saved person will not continue in sin because he has been born of God. So we're talking here about those contrasts, the difference in the practice of believers and unbelievers. Now, the confusion here is the way that it's been translated into English in the King James Version. Now, if you look at two statements here, in verse number 6, it says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. And in verse number 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now, there's the problem. What does that mean? Is he trying to tell us here that saved people are never going to sin again? Does it mean that if you do sin, that you're going to lose your salvation? Well, first, it seems 
incongruous to say that people say people will never sin because in the first chapter John said if we say that we have no sin he says we we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us it's also against the clear teaching of scripture to say that a person could lose their salvation I mean if that was possible then you'd have to trample the death the words of Jesus and the things that the apostle Paul said about the eternal uh, eternal security of the believer And then you'd also have difficulty with John because of what he says in verse number 9 because he said that there is a seed that remains in the Christian and whatever that seed is, it's always there according to John. And so we have to figure out what do these scriptures mean. And we're going to look at this tonight and we're going to look at it backwards a little bit because we're going to look at things that it cannot mean first before we talk about what it does mean, what it does not mean. Well, it does not mean that the sin nature has been destroyed in a Christian. Now, there are some people who believe this, and they believe that a Christian can actually work his way up to perfection. And they believe that you can finally reach such a high level of spirituality that the sin nature is erased. Now, understand, when you first get saved, the sin nature is not removed, When you first get saved, the sin nature is not completely gone. It's still there. And in this long process of sanctification, on your way to heaven and going through your life, having been saved, you might lose your salvation from time to time along the way. And then when you lose it, you go and you get it back. And you go a little bit further and you lose it again. And then you go and you get it back. And then you progress a little bit further and then you lose it and then you get it back. And each time that you lose your salvation, you're learning a little bit in the process here because finally you're going to come to the understanding, aha, here's what made me lose my salvation. And so you stop doing that. And when you stop doing that, you become perfect and you can't lose your salvation again. There are some people that believe that. Now, I'm sorry to be harsh about this, but I just have to call that brainless theology. I mean, that's for somebody who never interprets Scripture with Scripture. This is somebody who's got their idea figured out about what this is supposed to mean, some preconceived idea, and they've gone looking for some Scriptures in the Bible to try and prove their strange idea. Second thing is that it doesn't mean that there is a division of sins. And this is the Roman Catholic idea of of this Scripture. They believe that what John is referring to here is mortal sins that a true Christian cannot commit mortal sins or sins that are forever separating from God. But he can commit venial sins. Those are what you would call slight sins. These aren't sins that separate you from God, but they're sins that interfere with your fellowship with God. And so you can go to the priest and you can be forgiven of those sins all day long. And then you can go and commit them again, again. And then you can come back and you can get your penance and you can be forgiven of them again. Or you can take out your wallet and pay a cash payment and have it taken care of. Mortal sins versus venial sins divide sin into two categories. And that is a Roman Catholic doctrine. It is not a Bible doctrine. It's one of the huge, scandalous, money-making enterprises that put sin up for sale in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the third thing here is it does not mean that God denies that you have sinned. Now, this is the viewpoint that God understands you. He understands your human frailty. He understands that you can't stop sitting sinning. And so he takes into consideration that all of your sins have been taken care of in Christ anyway, 
that grace has covered up all of your sins, and so when you sin, he just showers out some more grace to cover it all up, and so it really doesn't matter at all if you sin. God's going to take care of it, and, and he just ignores it as if sin didn't really happen. Well, that's the Gnostic view, if there ever was one. Uh, they, this is what they said. They, they didn't deny that they had... Uh, they didn't deny that they were removed or from fellowship with God or didn't have fellowship with God because of sin. They sinned all they wanted to. It's really the whole point of the epistle to debunk that kind of thinking. That's what was getting the Christians here in the church that John is writing to messed up in the first place. Now, a fourth idea, it does not mean that you can't deliberately sin. And this is the view that a true Christian will not purpose in his heart to sin, that he won't plan it, that he will not willfully sin against God. And if he does sin, it's because sin sneaked up on him, and he's just a poor victim of sin. Well, you can actually go over to the book of James and you can have that theory knocked in the head very quickly because James says that sin is conceived in the heart, that it begins with lust and then it develops into sin. And folks, when you sin, you're fully conscious of what you're doing. And you can sin deliberately. There are sins of willful commission and sinners and uh, saved people commit them. And there are some sins that you might not know are sins. And when you became a Christian, you probably found out some things that were wrong, and you stopped doing those things after you were taught properly. That's what a true Christian does. If you've truly been converted, and you find out that things are sin, the knowledge of sin causes you to abandon that. That's what a Christian does. They don't go on sinning. Well, we come here to the real meaning of the text. Christians do not go on sinning, which means that they do not habitually sin. That's what John is saying in this scripture. So what does it mean? Well, it does mean for every person who is born again that the direction of your life changes. It does mean that your direction changes. Now, the problem in the text is that in the English, we can't see the proper tenses of the verbs that are used here in the Greek. And in each of these cases, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, and whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, those are present tense verbs. And it means that the person does not habitually live in sin, that the direction of his life is not to chase after sin in a relentless manner. Now, the contrast, again, is the practice. A lost sinner practices sin, and a Christian is what you would call a non-practitioner. He's not always living in sin. An unbeliever is ruled by sin. He's under sin's dominion. But a believer is not ruled by sin. He has a different direction to his life. Now, take your Bible, if you would, and let's go over to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to look here to see how Paul fleshes this whole matter out. And that's uh, a little pun that you're going to see in just a minute. But Paul fleshes the matter out for us. A Christian takes off in a different direction from the direction he was going before, and that's because his mind is changed. Now, if you look at Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, 
that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, let's notice how Paul develops this, because what we could do here, we could just superimpose John's thoughts upon this text, and they would be exactly the same. Those that are in the flesh correspond to what? Well, that corresponds to the unbeliever. When John talks about the unbeliever, Paul is talking about the ones that are in the flesh. Now, the ones that are in the Spirit are who? Well, those are the believers. They're, not, they're the ones that follow the Spirit. The believers are the spiritual side. So what happens to believers? Well, he says here that the Spirit of life in Christ makes them free from the law of sin. And why does it do this? What is the purpose of it? He says, so that righteousness might be fulfilled in them. Now, go on to John's argument, because it shows up in verse number 5 of the text. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. So there's the contrast for you. Those that are in the flesh, that is, unbelievers, they continue to mind the things of the flesh. That means they keep on sinning. But those that are after the Spirit, those that believed, mind the things of the Spirit. Now, I don't care how you cut that. The things of the Spirit are not sinful. Those things are righteous. Then he says in verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, what we have here, it's like John and Paul sat down together and they wrote these passages side by side. In fact, they did, in a way, because the Holy Spirit's the one who inspired both of them to write what they wrote. They're both in perfect harmony on this subject. If you have the Spirit of Christ, you're righteous. You will be righteous. You will practice righteousness. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you won't. And that's the contrast. Now, Paul said, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Well, what is the Spirit? That's the indwelling Spirit. The indwelling Spirit is what gives us our righteous character. And so John says it this way, Whoso abideth in him sinneth not, does not go on sinning. Whosoever sinneth, goes on sinning, hath not seen him, neither known him. So Paul and John agree about this. If you go on sinning, you don't have the Spirit of Christ. You haven't seen him, and you haven't known him. Now, the spirit of unbelief is habitual sin. And if that person is not involved in some heinous practice at any particular given time, he's still in unbelief, and unbelief is an ongoing habitual sin. When, as long as you're in unbelief, you are committing an habitual sin. So you can raise your hand a hundred times, you can walk down the aisle two hundred times, you can kneel at the altar three hundred times, And if it doesn't make you a disciple of Christ so that you have his righteous character and that you do works of righteousness then all your hand-raising and your aisle-walking and your altar-kneeling has done nothing but give you good exercise because it's not any indication of true salvation. Now, what I'm speaking here is nothing short of lordship salvation. He must be your Lord, and you must acknowledge him as your Lord, and you must follow him. Now, can you imagine for just a moment 
Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and Jesus walks up to him, and he says, follow me. And Matthew says, well, I, I don't think so. I like extorting money. I like being a traitor to my country. I like being a cheat and a liar. Thanks for the salvation. I'll take that. But you just go on and go about your business. I'm fine right here doing what I'm doing. And that is the very same thing as that fundamental Baptist paper editor that I told you about who says that you could be a Christian and not be a disciple. And so in effect, he says, go on sinning. It's okay. You can still be a Christian. You're safe and secure. But Jesus said, go and sin no more unless a worse thing come upon you. So sin is incompatible with Christianity. And if your direction doesn't change according to your profession, then your profession is not a real profession. Now let's finish up with John's statement, verse number 9. He says, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now the question is, what is the seed that remains in him? And that's a very important thing for us to determine because John says this is the cause of why a Christian can't continue in sin. So what does he mean by that? Well, he means that the divine is in you. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not going to Kenneth Copeland on you here. Uh, Kenneth Copeland believes that when you get saved, you become a little god. That's not what this means. This means that the divine principle of life is in you, that you have been born of God. Now, you know as well as I do, that's one of John's regular expressions. It's the Apostle John who gives us the teaching about the new birth and talks about being born again because he quoted Jesus in John chapter 3. In John 3, Jesus answered him, that was Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. And the thought there is identical to what we have in 1 John 3, 9. We are born of the Spirit of God. And that means that the divine seed of life has been implanted into us. And when that seed is planted, the seed always remains. It's guarded and it's protected by God. And what do seeds do? Seeds grow, don't they? Seeds enlarge. They blossom out. You see, we haven't received a dormant seed. It's not a lifeless seed. But this seed blossoms out into the fruit of the Spirit of God. And that is the proof that we truly are the children of God. It's that blossoming life. It's the new understanding that we have of God's Word, which enables us to practice God's commands. 
Now, this is what the Scripture says in 1 Peter, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So the seed is there. It's been implanted by the Holy Spirit in regeneration through the incorruptible word of God. And so that means there is now going to be a change of direction. There is a divine life. It is a demonstrated life. It is a contrast that's demonstrated. So in verse number 10 of the text, John says, this is how you tell who is and who is not a Christian. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. And so then what about the preacher who says, well, you don't have to become a disciple of Christ. He denies God's word. The scripture says, here is how you know whether or not you are a Christian. If you continue in sin, you're a child of the devil and not a child of God. Now, way back when, a month ago or whatever it was, when I started the first message, I said there's only a small segment of Christianity and all the Christians that are in the world who actually believe the, the, or refute the doctrine that I'm talking to you about tonight. There are actually very, very, very few Christians who believe in non-lordship salvation. Unfortunately, many who do are among independent Baptist people. Not all of them, thank the Lord. Some of them stand with us on this. But I want you to listen to something here that I thought was interesting. You think, well, well why is it that there are so many people that... that uh, on the right side of the question. Those that are truly saved, they're on the right side of the question. Well, let me read something to you here. This is, first of all, from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Verse number, verse number 10 reads this way. It's verse, is it verse 9 or verse 10? I didn't write it down here. It's verse number, uh, verse number 10. The, the English Standard Version reads it this way. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The NIV reads, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. The New English Bible reads, this is the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. The Revised Standard Version reads, by this it may be seen who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The Contemporary English Version reads, you can tell God's children from the devil's children. The Amplified Bible reads, By this it is made clear who take their nature from God and are his children, and who take their nature from the devil and are his children. The New American Standard Bible reads, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And then of all places, the message reads this way, Here's how you tell the difference between God's children and the devil's children. They say, why do you bother to bring up all those strange, strange different Bible translations that we won't even use? Well, it tells me this, folks, that even if you're a heretic, you ought to be able to get this right. They all translated that verse right. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with them, but they all translated those verses right. Now, I wonder then, why is it that many of our fundamental Baptist people can't get it right? And don't get me wrong, I'm not not picking on fundamental Baptists because there are many, 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 many who do have this right. So what's wrong with that strange group of them that don't have it right? What's wrong with a group that says you can be a Christian, but you don't have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? 
What's wrong with those who say that a person can be saved and yet they may never show even one single fruit of salvation in all of their lives? It's not necessary just as long as you said that you believed. Well, I think you get this. I mean, I don't understand how you can refute it. John's arguments are so clear here that that it's just plain as day. And there's a hundred other places in Scripture that we could go or more that we could talk about it. Let me give you a couple of quotes and then we'll finish for this evening. A no-repentance gospel, a no-holiness gospel, a no-submission gospel, a no-transformation gospel is the devil's lie to give false security to damned people. So for the protection of the church from false teaching agents of Satan, the New Testament is crystal clear on how you can determine whether one is a believer. And that is John's very specific specific purpose in writing. So there's no mistaking the fact that true Christians are transformed people and their new life is very different from their former life. And then this last one, two things are at stake here. One, your own soul is at stake. So you need to understand whether you're a real Christian or not. Secondly, the church needs to be observant about this so that we deal with people for their own sake and for the protection of the church. Anybody who preaches a gospel that says it's only a change in your status and not a change in your life is preaching the devil's message. And to that, folks, we say, Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth that we find here, how clear that this is to us. The Apostle John has given us unfailing arguments. The Apostle that you have appointed to to give us your truth has told us so clearly that to be a Christian, there has to be the reception of Jesus Christ as both our Savior and our Lord, and without both there is neither. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand this clearly. And we don't speak against other people and what they believe for the purpose of belittling anyone or anything like that. But we want people to understand the truth and how harmful not knowing the truth is to a person's soul. If we don't get this right, if we do not understand that we must receive Christ as Lord and follow him as he has commanded, then there's no real change that's taken place in a person's life. That's what we preach. That's what we believe because we believe it's in your word. Thank you, Lord, for our time tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.